Welcome to Willard Church of the Nazarene. We're glad you're here. We can't wait to share the service with you.
Light of the world, there's freedom in his name. Awesome in power, reign forever. Light of the world, there's freedom in his name. His name is Jesus. His name is Jesus. You turn in your Bibles to the book of Job, chapter 1. Can I just put this out there? I've never really liked the book of Job. Like, seriously, this is a book that I've had to wrestle with, and it was only real recently that I've really started to appreciate this book. Uh, I think it's a bad book to put in the Bible if you want to win converts, right? Because there's some stuff in there you're like, it just seems like it's a little bit, I don't know, we'll, we'll kind of go through that. I, I tend to look at the Bible from the point of view of somebody who doesn't believe, and I think it's a tough book to read if you're not a believer and if you don't have those same beliefs that we believe. I think it's a tough book to read if you, even if you do have the same beliefs that we have and you're looking through this. Um, I think in order to really understand this book, you have to get the big picture, and at the same time, you have to understand the character of God. Big picture, this is wisdom literature, all right? There are several books in the Bible that are considered wisdom literature, books like Proverbs, uh, this book, Ecclesiastes, those are some. Wisdom literature deals with this is how life works, generally speaking. And you have to understand that in order to read these books in the right frame of mind. Two of these books tell the same story, but from different vantage points. The book of Job and the book of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes is an interesting book. When you get there, uh, to say the least, you're going to enjoy it. It was written by King Solomon. And uh, we know he was a man gifted with knowledge like no other right? In Ecclesiastes, Solomon tries to see if there's anything worthwhile under the sun, and he goes after those things that he tries to to look at. Solomon was a king. He had immense power. He didn't have to worry about a congress or a judicial system for checks and balances. He could do whatever he wanted. He's extremely wealthy, right? Maybe the, the wealthiest person on the earth at this time. And he searches for meaning. 
He starts with the party scene. And he, and he parties hard, right? He throws one, and he finds out, hey, these are fun. These are nice. These are, these are good. It, it's good for a time, uh, but then it gets old, right? But he doesn't quit partying. He parties even harder at this point. You can read about the barbecues that he has and the 200 head of cattle that he's, that he's slaughtering. He's doing it uh, better DJs, maybe better wine, uh, more food, uh, more time. But even in that, it gets lame. You wake up from a drunken stupor enough, uh, cleaning vomit off yourself enough, right? You realize partying doesn't satisfy. So he switches from partying to building an empire. That's what he goes after. He plants vineyards and forests, and he builds things like the, the pools of Solomon, things that you can still see today. He creates and improves cities, and he's very successful at it, right? He reaches the pinnacle, and it's great at first. And then it loses its greatness, and in the end, it, he discovers it's meaningless too. Then he moves on to pleasure, and he doesn't hold anything back in this area, right? He goes after it, 300 wives, 700 other lovers, and he discovers it's great until it isn't. It started off good, but then turned meaningless too. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. He tries leisure. Think massages and chefs and personal trainers, right? Uh, he discovers that. That isn't what it's about as well. And that's what he shares in the book of Ecclesiastes. It's everything that we chase after today, right? Probably one of those things is something that we're chasing after today. Partying, success, money, leisure, right? We can't wait to get retired because then it'll be where, where it's all about. We can't wait to get there. Um, but we discover it's just a treadmill that we're on. Like I said, we're probably going after one of these things in whatever season of life that we're in. Uh, we're looking and straining towards these things. Praise God, though, that we have the book of Ecclesiastes. We have the wisdom of Solomon who experienced these things, right? He experienced being rich like we could never be rich. He experienced having a thousand wives or lovers, all the success in the world with building things, all the success and leisure, more so than we could ever imagine. But we have from him the testimony that it's all meaningless. It really doesn't add up to chase after those things in the end. So we don't have to make that same mistake today. Ecclesiastes is wisdom literature if we'll listen to it. A big if, because a lot of us are still going to chase after those things and have to learn the hard way, right? There's nothing under the sun, though, that will satisfy the souls of mankind for very long. And we all know that's true, because we've all gone after those things. We've all wanted that car and, and dreamed about that car, and then when we got that car, then it loses meaning, and we want to go after the next car, right? On the opposite side of Ecclesiastes is the book of Job. And that's what we're going to be looking at. Job doesn't gain everything and find out that really only God is enough. Job loses everything and finds out that God is enough. Now, this is extremely important because we are stuck in between these two men 
in our lives, no matter where we're at, right? We, we may have suffered, but we've never suffered like Job has. We may have success, but we've never had the success that Solomon has had. And so we're stuck in between these two people, but we can learn from the extremes that we see in these books, right? We don't have to go down these paths that they went down because they tell us that both in prosperity and both in suffering, really the only thing that matters is God is enough. That's the truth, right? They just point to it from different directions. So that's the big picture, something that we have to keep in mind when we understand and read these books. Like, Let's get into Job chapter 1, beginning at verse 1, though. It says this, In the land of Uz, there lived a man whose name was Job. This man was blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. He had seven sons and three daughters, and he owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 donkeys, and a large number of servants. He was the greatest man among all the people of the East. His sons used to hold feasts in their homes and on their birthdays, and they would invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. When a period of feasting had run its course, Job would make arrangements for them to be purified. Early in the morning, he would sacrifice a burnt offering for them, thinking, perhaps my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. This was Job's regular custom. One day, the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them. The Lord said to Satan, where have you come from? Satan answered the Lord, from roaming throughout the earth, going back and forth on it. Then the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. Does Job fear God for nothing, Satan replied? Have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? You have blessed the work of his hands so that his flocks and herds are spread throughout the land. But now stretch out your hand and strike everything he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, very well, then everything he has is in your power. But on the man himself, do not lay a finger. Then Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. One day when Job's sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the oldest brother's house, a messenger came to Job and said, the oxen were plowing and the donkeys were grazing nearby and the Sabaeans attacked and made off with them. They put the servants to the sword and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another messenger came and said, the fire of God fell from the heavens and burnt up the sheep and the servants, and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another messenger came and said, the Chaldeans formed three raiding parties and swept down on your camels and made off with them. They put the servants to the sword, and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, yet another messenger came and said, your sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the older brother's house, when suddenly a mighty wind swept in from the desert and struck the four corners of the house. It collapsed on them, and they are dead. And I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. At this, Job got up and tore his robe and shaved his head. Then he fell to the ground in worship and said this, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. In all this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. This is the word of God. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word. 
Lord, would you reveal its truth to us? Lord, would you speak to us through it and nothing else, Lord? Holy Spirit, you have right of way. Soften our hearts. Open our eyes. Open our ears. Help us to understand this, Lord. Give us wisdom, Lord. We pray that you would be praised in everything. In your name we pray. Amen. In life, there is nothing more certain than the fact that you are going to suffer, right? Our culture does everything to deny that truth. Our culture does everything to steer away from suffering. Our culture tells you you don't have to suffer, right? There will be people around us, though, that do. We ourselves will suffer. The, the book of Job contains several dialogues, a dialogue between God and Satan, a dialogue between um, Job and his friends, and finally a, a dialogue between God and Job. When suffering hits... There are two basic people, generally speaking. The, the religious-leaning person often starts to say, why is God punishing me? What, what am I doing wrong? Maybe I need to go to church more. Maybe I need to pray more. We think of it as a punishment. We see this in the dialogue of Job's friends who are like, you must have sinned in some way and think this is the reason why this is happening to Job. And unfortunately, sometimes we have those same ideas and we have those same thoughts. Sometimes it's justified. We know that you do reap what you sow, generally speaking. But that's not the reason that we see Job suffering here, right? The Bible tells us also that we live in a broken world. And there is pain and there is also an enemy. The, the non-religious side has a tendency to see suffering as just some random thing in life. And I think they would agree, too, that the world is broken. For them, though, suffering is just something that happens. It's just more proof that God doesn't exist. Or it's proof that if, for some reason, God does exist, he's just indifferent. Because why on earth would he allow this to happen to me? So either God is punishing me, or really there is no one in control. But the book of Job teaches that both of those things are, are wrong. Along with the ideas of suffering, Job also addresses something bigger, and it's the idea of love and the reason that we love God. We see this through the dialogue that we just read, right? In verse 8, God says, Have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. And how does Satan respond to this? Of course he does, right? You've put your hedge of protection around him. Look at how you've blessed him. That is the only reason that he loves you. Take it away and he'll curse you. And God says very well, you can do this, but you can't do that. And Satan went out and did all these things to Job. When we first look at this, this is, this is where my problem is. When I first read this book and, and started looking at it, um, it's almost like God and Satan are playing a game with Job. That's how it appears with this poor guy, right? But let's keep in mind some things. First of all, it's Satan's idea about all these bad things that would happen to Job. God doesn't come up with this idea, right? Satan is the one who goes and does it. Don't forget the important fact that when God made this world, there was no disease. There was no suffering 
in it, right? He didn't make that. There were no natural disasters going on. There were no tears. This is not the world that God intended. It wasn't a world where storms came in and knocked foundations down and killed everybody in the house. It's not what he created. It wasn't a place of death. Disease and disaster are forces of darkness that were unleashed when we rejected God. When we rebelled against God, we unleashed those forces, right? So on one hand, God is not actively desiring or creating the suffering that goes on in in Job's life. Satan is. However, God is in absolute control, right? He's allowing this. He permits this. Notice he says very well. He does limit it. He says you can do this, but you can't do that. But he's in control. And on the surface, that's very hard to hear. That's very hard to understand. Why, why does God allow this? And I think it's because of what will be accomplished through this suffering. God only allows Satan to accomplish the very opposite of what he intended to accomplish. He only gives Satan enough rope to hang himself, in other words. Satan is bringing evil and suffering into Job's life, right? But he doesn't get the results that he's trying to get. What does Satan want? He wants Job to be discredited, right? He wants to expose him as a fraud. He wants Job to curse God and for that relationship to be restored, to be destroyed. But that doesn't happen throughout all of this, right? And Job learns what Solomon learns, had learned, that only God is enough. Today, we all know who Job is. We see him as an example, right? We look to somebody who has this amazing steadfastness in their response to all this suffering. He's one of the greatest figures in the history of the human race that we, that we look to. Thousands of years later, we're still studying him and looking at him. Satan was allowed to bring that suffering into his life, right? But don't get confused on what God's plan was what God would accomplish through that, right? God hates evil. He's against it. We know this because he didn't create a world with evil in it. But he permits it. Why? He permits this evil into Job's life in such a way and in such amount that it actually accomplished, completely defeats Satan's real intention. And Job learns that great truth through it. Because of that, we now have that example. Because of that, we now can learn this great truth as well. Another thing that we see is that Job never hears this conversation about what's going on. Throughout this entire book, even when he talks to God, Job never hears about this. He has no idea why any of this is, is happening, why the suffering, um, even at the end when he speaks to God. He never, God never tells him, hey, for the rest of time, you're going to be an example hey, this is the reason that you're doing it. You're going to learn this truth, right? All he says is, who, who darkens my counsel through words without knowledge? Who do you think you are? I'm, I'm God, right? I know what I'm doing. I know what this will do for you. I know the example that this will create for, million, for thousands of people that will suffer after this, right? The lessons that we're called to in the Bible are, are one that calls us to serve God 
even though we may never know the reason why we're suffering or why we're going through whatever we're going through, it calls us to trust. It calls us to faith, faith in him, right? It calls us to trust God with the mysteries and the things that happen in our life. We often don't get an answer. Job didn't. But like Job, we still stay in relationship with God, with a God that we can't control, with a God that we can't put in a box, right? The book of Job, as harsh and as heavy as it is, teaches us to embrace that. You don't need to know why. Back at verse 8, God says, Job is blameless and upright, and he fears me. In the Old Testament, the word fear is much more of a positive term than it is today, and it comes across in English. The word fear means to have this inward awe and wonder. Therefore, God is saying, Job serves me, but really, it, it's because of his love, right? Job loves me. He's in awe and wonder of me, and that's why he shuns evil. You see why fear is kind of a, a lacking word, because Satan goes, does Job fear God for nothing? And then he accuses him. No, he fears you because you are protecting him. That wouldn't be the right word, right? The right idea. No, he fears you because he's in awe and wonder and loves you because of these things and these blessings. That's Satan's account. He loves what he's getting from you. It's the money. It's the prosperity. It's the health. It's the status. He doesn't love you for you. He loves you for the things that he's getting from you. Now, let's be honest, right? That probably describes a lot of people in their relationship with God because they think this is what I'm getting from God, right? And if that stuff gets taken away, then we really struggle with that, at least in in America, in our culture, right? I have this cat, that only comes to me when he wants something, right? If he wants to be fed, if he wants somebody to play with, he'll come up to me and he'll draw that attention from me. But if I go up to him when he doesn't want to be bothered, right? If I pick him up, he makes this annoyed sound. He growls at me. He, he nips at me and he bites me, right? People are like that. Have you ever noticed when somebody meets you and they're really friendly with you? Um, at least they're really friendly until they find out that you're not going to be able to help them out with whatever they want you to help them out with, right? And then what happens? They're gone, right? And that's, that's a lot of people with church. They, they come here thinking that they're going to be helped with this thing, and then they get helped, and they're gone, or they don't get helped, and then they're gone. Ladies, you've probably experienced this with a guy that uh, is really friendly to you, but then he finds out you're not going to give him something, and so what happens? He's a lot of times gone. There are a lot of people like that. And this is the accusation of, of Satan towards Job, right? For a lot of Christians, for a lot of people, it's true. We love God a lot of times when we think he's providing us with things and, and he's blessing us with things. But as soon as we face suffering, as soon as those things are taken away, then we're gone. Um, that's the beauty of this wisdom literature, though. If you want to be a person of integrity, if you want to be a person with principle with your faith, you have to learn to love God and not things, right? Not things that you think you're getting from him. Um, That's the lesson that Job will learn through this. And we can learn this too. Unfortunately, we oftentimes learn this through suffering. 
Joe, in his early suffering, shows that he's a person that doesn't love God for things, right? For money, for even kids. Naked I came, naked I'll go. As you go further, though, uh, he loses more and more, and you see signs of self-centeredness. He, he doesn't love God for things, but he also isn't to the place where he loves God only for God, only for that relationship with him, and that's enough. The only way, though, that he can become this mature person is through this suffering. And so that's the reason that God allows it. It's not a game that he's playing. He knows what the enemy intends, but he knows what he can do and what will be accomplished through this. So it appears one way on the surface, but it's far more deeper than that. And this is the way that Job grows into this amazing person that he is. <clears throat> he's going to have to let go. He's going to have to let go of the why, right? Uh, we think we could handle the suffering if we knew the why. Sometimes that's the thing that really plagues us. But if we knew the why, we'd handle the suffering in a different way for the wrong reasons. And we wouldn't, in the end, grow in our love and dependence and trust in God. It's an extremely hard lesson that we have to learn and I say Job has to grow in this, but at the same time, I see I'm nowhere close to being where Job is, even at this point, right? I went through a season where I lost money, friends, status, reputation, and I started to learn this lesson, and I and learned part of it, but it wasn't even close to what Job experienced. The only way for us to get to this place where God is enough is where we get to the place where God doesn't owe us anything. That's the place where we need to get. Job wants to plead his case with God because he thinks God made a mistake with his suffering. And that's us too, right? Why is this happening? There must be some mistake. He thinks God owes him, but he'll learn that God doesn't owe him anything through his conversation with him. This is huge for us because we all know that if you serve God, trouble and hardship are coming. It's coming to us, right? Jesus tells us that. He tells us that this world will hate us. He tells us that there is an enemy that wants to seek us and kill us and destroy us, right? We have an enemy if we bear Jesus's name, but the beauty of suffering and through all of this is that we can learn that God is enough to satisfy our souls through it. So how do we walk this path? Job starts off great. At this, Job got up and tore his robe and shaved his head. Then he fell to the ground in worship and said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. I think for us, it starts off with tearing our clothes, falling to the ground, and worshiping him, right? In our culture, we think this person probably looks like somebody that had lost it, but the Bible tells us that he didn't sin in this, right? We need to be, we need to be free to do that in the midst of pain. Let's drop the mask. Let's be authentic, and let's be real. Um, let it out, Right? cry out, but continue to worship him. Uh, I saw at a funeral of Franz when his brother died, how they responded to that death. They wailed. 
they cried out. It shocked me, right? Um, it was very intense, uh, but at the same time, it was beautiful, right? And, and I think we, we in our culture are so reserved. We're not authentic. We, we put on the mask. We're good, right? We, we don't want to show that we're not good. So I think the first part of this, we just got to be real. We got to rip our clothes. Let everybody see that we're hurting, that we need help. Along with that, though, we need to worship. We need to go to the one who knows exactly what we're going through, right? Um, We also have to have this theology of grace that Job has. Nothing I have is mine. In our culture, we work hard for the things that we get, so they are ours. Those are my things, right? How dare you allow them to be taken away from me? But in a theology of grace, naked I came and naked I'm going, right? I'm given everything. I'm a steward. I'm entrusted with everything I have right now. Everything's on loan. These are temporary gifts of God's grace. Uh, This is critical because all of us starts off with a theology of things, We build our life on things. We build our lives on achievements. We build our lives trying to make a name for ourselves. And that's the foundation that we we are set upon. But when those things are taken away, then our life starts to crumble. We get mad. We get angry, right? Our happiness goes away. Um, We're mad at God. Suffering happens as a result of those things being taken away. If, if that thing is yours, then you're going to be sad when it's taken away. But if it's God's, if it's on loan to you, if God is the source of your joy, right, you can weather that storm a lot easier because it's not yours. It was just something that was borrowed, right? That's, if, if God is your source of joy, that can never be taken away, right? If you're building your life on God's love, then suffering can actually drive you deeper towards that, into that source of joy. That's the reason that God allows suffering to happen, and and that's the hard lesson that's learned in this book. That's the hard lesson that's learned when we suffer too, and we make God the source of everything, but it's also a beautiful lesson. It's an important lesson for us to learn. That's where we learn it's possible to have joy, even in the midst of suffering. It all depends on what is the source of joy for your life. You build it on people and things, suffering's going to pull it away. You build it on God, then suffering draws you closer to him, closer to your source of joy. And that's what we see with Job. That is why everyone has heard of Job, right? Satan intended the exact opposite, but Satan was defeated. Job grew. Job found his true source of joy through this, and that's why God allowed it. At the heart of everything has to be this one truth, right? That is God loves you. Why would God allow me to suffer? God loves you, and he knows what that suffering will teach you. How do I know God loves me? Because the enemy will tell us, right? The enemy will come to us and tell us God doesn't love you. He's just using you, right? The church just wants your money, right? He's just playing games with you. Why else would he let you go through this? 
Well, there's another Job, right? Another righteous person, hundreds of years later, that would suffer. This man, entirely righteous, entirely blameless. This man did nothing wrong. Like this man, he was accused by Satan. He was falsely accused. He was beaten almost to death. He was mocked, and he was nailed to a cross. On the cross, he took the sin burden of the whole human race upon himself. Forsaken by God for a moment, God made him who had no sin to be sinned for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. How do you know God loves you? We look to the cross, right? We look to the cross. The cross shouts, Satan is a liar with whatever he's saying, right? Jesus Christ suffered. Not that we will not suffer ourselves, but that when we suffer, we can become like him. Amen? Stand with me. How do you handle suffering without knowing why? You look to Job and his example. How can you trust God when you don't hear from him? How do you know he really loves you? And all those things look to the cross. Look up to the one who bore our sins, our iniquities, right? The world is broken. Suffering is going to be normal. But Jesus suffered so that we could be saved, so that we could have a relationship with him, so that he could be enough for us. If we'll do that, if we'll put that priority right there, I just want to encourage you. Some of you are suffering right now. Some of you are facing heavy things. Look to the cross and worship him in this. Trust God is doing something through this. Trust God is maturing you. Trust God is changing your priorities. But always look to the cross. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you. Lord, I don't mean to make light of anything that anybody's going through here. And I know times are tough for some people especially. Father, I pray that they would be encouraged to uh, look to you. Father, I pray that they would be reminded that they serve the one who died for them. Lord, have your way. Lord, I pray that you would bring them comfort as only you can. Father, I pray that we would see the big picture in our suffering. Father, I pray that we would not put our stock in our faith in things of this world, Lord, and get mad at you when they're taken away. But Father, I pray that you would be the only source of joy in our life, the primary source, I'm sorry, of joy in our life, Lord. May everything rest on that. Father, we just love you and we give you praise. In your name we pray. Amen. You are just-